Welcome back to Moments That Matter. As you may know, my co-host Paul Schatzberger is a writer. He's had two books published, including the Moments That Matter companion book, which everyone should have at this point. And he is currently completing his third book. Uh, All of his writing is nonfiction. And fiction writers are well aware that storytelling is the essence of what they do. However, whether we are writing fiction or nonfiction, even academic writing, Paul believes that if we're not concerned about effective storytelling, We are missing out on a difference maker for our audience and therefore a key to success for our writing. He is currently preparing a course for Clemson's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, also known as Ali, on the subject, which he'll be teaching in June. And uh, just as personal testimony, I have witnessed and been a firsthand observer of Paul's ability and giftedness in storytelling. And so I'm very excited to talk with him about this. So, Paul, where did the idea come from for this course? Well, when I was going through my doctoral program, uh, qualitative research was just coming to the fore, and this is something that has fundamentally changed not only research, but also research writing. Uh, There's a fellow named Elliot Eisner, uh, who was a Stanford professor, and he published a book called The Enlightened Eye in 1991 while I was in my doctoral program. And uh, he happened to be trained as a painter, which was kind of interesting for an educational researcher. Uh, So he approached research from the perspective of an artist. And he coined the term connoisseurship, or the art of appreciation, and married it with criticism, or what he called the art of disclosure. It was a very unique approach to research. Um, So for him, context was everything. Uh, And as far as research writing is concerned, he says, uh, this is a quote, language, like all other forms of representation, is constitutive of experience and is not merely a conveyor of it. So there is meaning in language beyond simply what we were describing with it. And I maintain that the form of language that we use, in particular storytelling, can be almost as meaningful as what we were trying to convey. Uh, For decades, the only acceptable way of addressing yourself as a research writer was in the third person. So you would say the researcher maintains, or even worse, we maintain, when in fact you're only speaking about one person. Uh, And it was important, above all else, to maintain a certain detachment from the research process. However, as Elliot Eisner notes, the need for objectivity leads to camouflage which is definitely a concern for any writer. Um, So there is the potential for this masking of the voice of the researcher. Uh, Very recently, the American Psychological Association has come out and said the use of the personal pronoun is acceptable now in research writing, which gives you an idea how much things have changed in the last 30 years. Also, it's now accepted practice for the researcher to enter into and participate with the environment in which the data is being gathered. There even exists something called autoethnography, not simply an ethnographic or qualitative study based on observations and interviews, but literally a researcher studying themselves in some environment. 30 years ago, when I got my doctorate, this would have been unthinkable, but it's becoming commonplace. So we've now matured to the place where we can imagine the world of the objective 
commingling with the world of the subjective. And in fact, interestingly, John Verrecki has invented a new word for the English language to express this commingling, uh, and it's the word transjective. Uh, this term helps us go beyond the endless culture wars between radical romantics uh, who privilege the, the subjective and the radical empiricists who see only mechanical processes. So my personal view agrees with Verrikis. Uh, there is much more that is real in the transjective than in either of the extremes. It's amazing. That kind of harkens back to an element of the conversation we had with Dr. Corey Latta, especially as he was talking about storytelling and research and allowing the researcher to include part of themselves. Uh, so with that in mind, what is the power of story as far as you are concerned? Well, story is all around us, uh, if we care to look for it. Um, it's said that more than half of the world's population prefers the concrete mode of learning, and story is certainly part of that. Um, and this is because stories connect with our imagination and our emotions. Uh, we know that parables and myths have been around for thousands of years, and they've been used to teach some really deep truths that might not have been accepted otherwise or potentially were not very accessible otherwise. Uh, so the question is, what is it about these stories that is so appealing and enduring? And I would throw in here that approximately 75% of the Bible is made up of stories. If we consider histories, parables, etc. And since the Bible is a perennial bestseller, we should probably ask ourselves whether the use of story might have something to do with that. What does research tell us about the importance of story? So uh, there are a number of actual uh, research findings that uh, pertain to story. Um, some research has been done on uh, metaphors and their ability to access different regions of the brain, uh, including, interestingly, those uh, involving sensory responses. Uh, so as an example, a metaphor like, quote, he had leathery hands, for example rouse participants' sensory cortex to activity, while something like he had strong hands did nothing at all. Meaning, combined with vivid imagery, deeply engages the brain of the reader. Uh, brain research also tells us that memory is based on our nervous system. We remember through our emotions. Uh, thus, when we get emotional about a task, we have the potential for learning. And this can work in two ways. One is positive, one is negative. We can all remember classes where we were scared to death, either because of the content or the teacher. We were emotional, but because of those uh, emotions being negative, we shut down and no learning happened. This is in contrast to classes where we were challenged, but we felt like we had the capacity to meet the challenge. And so emotions were more positive, and there was a positive environment for learning. Our brains love stories for exactly these reasons. We feel the emotion of the characters in the situation, but we have the safety of knowing it's just a story. By using storytelling, we're tapping into the emotions of the reader. Uh, we are creating the potential for their engagement. We are engage engendering empathy and critical thinking, and that experience is retained in long-term memory as something useful for later. 
I think maybe since you mentioned 75% of the Bible is made up of story, it makes me think that here in the Western world, it seems like we have a, a certain absence of storytelling when it comes to scripture. Maybe more so it's a mental ascent. It's a, a very cerebral engagement with the text and and uh, an expanding on what was meant by the writers and original language. But since you've been on the mission field uh, for quite some time, and I've seen it as well, do you think that this element of storytelling has maybe been lost in Christianity a little bit? And, and what would that mean if we were to engage it a bit more? I think it's certainly been lost in Western Christianity. Um, yeah, we, we just have an aversion uh, to anything that doesn't look like uh, literal truth. And so if something is written poetically, uh, like uh, some of Genesis or the Psalms or Ecclesiastes or some of these other books, then uh, we prefer the literal translation or the literal interpretation. And we just lose basically storytelling. And, uh, and, and I think the rest of the world is not you know, inclined that way. I think the, the Bible is allowed to speak for itself, if you will. Um, also, story is just much more valued uh, in other cultures. Um, it's much more present in family gatherings, as an example. Um, it's just understood that this is how truths get transmitted in societies. It's the community coming together and agreeing on values, and one of the ways that those values are transmitted is through storytelling. And so there's just this valuing of that kind of aspects of the Bible. And we just are not doing much of that in the West. Uh, that's not how things get done, unfortunately. And as a result, I think in some ways we've fractured apart as a result of that because we don't have the emphasis on community, uh, on shared values. And so uh, that aspect of, uh, in fact, Christianity of the church is, is lost. And, and yeah, I think it's a tremendous loss. I think uh, one of the first things we were taught in some training when we were preparing to go overseas was have a 90-second testimony, have a 5- to 10-minute testimony, be ready to pull that out at any time. And I didn't realize the importance of testimony until we were in uh, several African churches we were working with, and every service, it was minimum two to three people stand up and share a testimony. Even if we've heard it before, fill in the gaps. And it was almost like they were saying, tell us the story of how mm -hmm. you engaged with the presence of God, how he worked in you, through you, whatever the case may be. And I see that aspect also as well. I think we get nervous uh, about over-reliance on story in the Bible, but we also don't necessarily allow people to share their story and their journey of walking with God and use it as edifying material. Have you seen that to be the case with the division of Western Christianity versus what you observed as well? Yeah, because it's not only about story, it's also about time. You know, if you're going to tell a story, it's going to take time. 
uh, if you're going to appreciate story, it's going to take time. And we don't have time <laughs> in the West. Um, things are much, much quicker. Uh, I remember being in Ukraine and preaching in one city, and uh, I preached for 45 minutes, and that's with translation. So understand, you know, that's basically your 20-minute ser- sermon. Um, and the pastor took me to task afterward. He said, why did you preach so short? <laughs> we, we wanted to be here for, you know, long time and listen to what you had to say. And it's just a different way of thinking. Uh, it's just a different value system. Uh, and we've, as I said, I, I think we've lost a lot, including the ability to tell stories and really appreciate stories. What aspects of storytelling do you think are particularly important for writing? Well, I'm sure there are many, but uh, there are two huge aspects for me, uh, and that is believability and persuasion. Uh, Elliot Eisner notes that, uh, this is a quote, one criterion through which believability of a qualitative narrative is determined is the coherence or tightness of the argument it presents. Uh, So I would suggest that that is true of any kind of narrative, Um, whether or not you're talking about qualitative research or anything, um, especially nonfiction, because the narrative, the believability, uh, is just absolutely essential in fiction, because obviously it's fiction. (laughs) So uh, the, the reader has to be convinced that this is something believable and possible. Uh, we somehow abandon that with nonfiction. You know, we, we say, well, look, this is nonfiction. Of course it's believable. <laughs> and, and the truth is that a lot of what happens in life that's real is not believable necessarily. And so we have to be willing to convince the, the reader of that believability. The other thing is uh, persuasion. Um, so there's a journalist and best-selling author, Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about this in terms of, um, uh, he, he does talk about believability, but his focus is on persuasion, uh, and three things in particular, which I can talk about if you want, um, that it is valid, that, uh, the writer is perceived to have authority and that it is something worth caring about. And all of those are as much, I think, considerations for the nonfiction writer as for the fiction writer. What do you think uh, makes a story believable for the reader? All right. Well, so, so those three things, um, if I could break it down. Um, as I said, first, that it's valid. Um, there is a logic to the argument uh, that the writer presents. And again, we assume this with nonfiction. Um, Well, of course, you know, it happened. Here's how it happened. And what we wind up doing is we say, and then this, and then that, and then that. And it's just a laundry list after a while. Um, There's no sense of movement. Uh, There's no sense of argument. And this is something that the reader really needs in order for an idea to be believable. Um, the second thing is the writer has to be perceived as having some kind of authority to write about the idea. And so rather than just sitting down and writing, um, is there some kind of research that's gone into it? 
uh, are there sources for it? Uh, and and what I mean by that is not necessarily, you know, research related sources like you would find in a you know a study or something like that, but just talking to people um, and getting multiple perspectives other than just the authors, uh, because it's funny how we remember things one way and then someone else remembers them a different way, and so um, you know has are those multiple perspectives present in the story. And then the third thing uh, is that this idea that is being conveyed, that is being written about, is something worth caring about. Um, so it, strange as it sounds, maybe, I don't know, the reader needs to be convinced that they should be invested in the story, even though, again, it's nonfiction, and even though, you know, actually this happened. Um, so that can refer to something that is curious or something that is relatable or something that is fascinating. And that would include the characters in the story. Um, the APA manual says it like this, uh, make certain that every word means exactly what you intended to mean. So that's basically what we're looking for in our storytelling. That's great. And speaking of nonfiction, why do you think the nonfiction writer needs to be just as concerned about story arc as the fiction author? Um, well, you know, those of our listeners with an English background know about story development and story arc. Uh, usually this is reserved for discussion of fiction writing, but I'm going to borrow a little bit from literature studies and apply it to nonfiction writing. Uh, so fundamentally, story arc is composed of two components. There's story tension and story resolution. If there is no tension, there is also little interest in continuing to read a book. And this is what I was referring to earlier uh, with believability. Um, if there's no resolution upon finishing the book, the reader throws it across the room in frustration. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a book or a movie or a TV show. Do we care about the characters? Are they facing genuine dilemma? Or does it seem contrived? If there's a buildup to the end, is there a payoff? Or are we let down? We've all sat through movies, and at the end of the movie, we wish that we could get the two hours back from our lives, you know, that we just spent with it. Um, my wife likely will never watch the movie Inception again because of the way it ended, uh, because it was very open-ended. However, we've also experienced movies that as soon as we were finished watching them, we we're ready to watch them again. Uh, so as I'm Talking about this, these next few examples, Scott, um, I would like for you and for our listeners to be thinking of a book or a movie or a TV show that you return to and could watch over and over again, okay? Um, so a movie for me that was like this was Argo, and I don't know who of our listeners has, has watched this movie, uh, but this is the story of the U.S. Embassy personnel who barely escaped with their lives during the Iranian Revolution of 1979. They had to pretend to take on the identities of a Canadian film crew scouting locations for a fictitious sci-fi movie called Argo. Even though I knew they escaped, you know, because it's nonfiction again, um, I was all twisted in knots as they were transported through the wild streets to the Tehran airport and questioned by security 
and they had to endure a delayed flight before they could finally fly to freedom. Though the story is true, it is the way the story is told that draws me in and keeps me spellbound. And in fact, when I think about movies, I enjoy rewatching. It may be for the action or the comedy, but it's always for the story. Um, so there are also books uh, that I have revisited uh, over the years. And, you know, true stories that keep on speaking to me. Uh, one book would be Mr. God, This is Anna. Uh, this is a story of a homeless five-year-old girl befriended by a 19-year-old young man in England in the years between World Wars I and II. Though seemingly helpless, she winds up teaching the man some very deep truths about life and faith. This book has become so personal for me that I purchased one of the original pen and ink illustrations of Anna. So what about you, Scott? Um, what books or movies or TV shows do you keep coming back to for story? Well, as soon as you gave the invitation to think of something that you return to, the first thing that came into my mind was The Count of Monte Cristo. I saw that movie when it came out with Jim Caviezel and was absolutely spellbound and then read the book afterward. There's a little bit of variation um, in, in the book and the movie. And then have I don't know how many times I've watched the movie since. And even now I could put everything on hold and go watch the movie and experience <laughs> it like it was the first time. In fact, I've tried to get my wife to watch it with me zillion times over uh, because if she works late one night or I have a night alone after the girls have gone to bed, I'll put the movie in and watch it. I think the elements that you described are exactly why I go back to it. It has these um, common human problems that you engage with, injustice, struggle to make it ahead, working for something that you feel like everything's fallen into place, and then your whole world's cut out from beneath you. And then that sort of crowning moment where everything seems to be falling into place only for Edmond to recall that every effort towards bringing his oppressors to justice sort of pales in comparison to living his life outside of that driving force. For me, that was such a compelling story because of its relatability, because of granted uh, Hollywood made some very sweet moments of justice, which were enjoyable, but the resolution at the end was, was so beautiful to see that everything is put into place, what's actually valuable in life. And so it's amazing the power that story has, because even as you were talking, I was transported back to the Chateau d'If with Edmond discovering the priest who taught him uh, the things that he put into practice after he got out and after he escaped. And I'm, I'm so compelled by this issue of storytelling because it's so relatable and yet we so quickly write it off, I think, in um, a variety of areas, whether it's Christianity entering into the stories that we're reading um, or, or practicing in church, or even if uh, it's academic um, pursuits. I was talking with a professor of mine, a former professor a couple weeks ago, and she was describing how she creates a message for preaching. And she, in sort of a meditative experience, reads the story several times in different translations of scripture and puts herself in the story. And she was specifically using the woman with the issue of blood who came up with, 
uh, to touch Jesus's garment. And so she initially becomes uh, just a member of the crowd watching the scene unfold. And then she becomes uh, the woman who had the issue. And then she takes the place of a disciple. And then she puts herself in the position of Jesus Christ and sees things from all these different angles and really enters into the story. And I think there's such an important element for us, even in, in spiritual formation through uh, something like that. But we've all seen great stories and we've all seen stories, much as you said, we want our two hours back or something that was so disappointing. How in nonfiction writing can you set up and resolve tension, build up to the moment of tension and then resolve it in a way that connects well with the reader? Well, uh, one way you don't do it is by presenting just one side of an issue and then confirming that side. Um, and this is done all the way, all the time, by the way, in research writing. Um, so uh, better, much better, is to establish tension by considering multiple perspectives and then introducing your particular way of looking at things, which may involve one or some combination of those perspectives. So the question is, like, what will happen? It's, it's not obvious. Um, the more obvious it is, the less the reader will care about it. Uh, so the success of the storytelling doesn't hang so much on confirming a particular perspective, but rather authentically pursuing the reality of the situation that's being investigated, much as a good detective show. So just, you just ask yourself as a writer, how often does Sherlock Holmes capture Moriarty? Uh, or how often does Batman capture jo the Joker? Uh, if that's all you care about, you're missing the point of the stories. Uh, what we love is the tension and the chase and the encounter and the struggle. So if you're able to demonstrate the authenticity of your investigation and conduct your analysis with fidelity, your reader will gladly forgive your inability to confirm a particular hypothesis. Um, that is not their major goal. Uh, the resolution of the tension is not everyone lived ever, happily ever after or everything turned out like I thought it would because this is both boring and unlikely. The resolution, as with life, is in the satisfaction of a well-told tale. This makes me think of a story that we used in our Old Testament class here for primarily a group of students that were not intimately familiar with the Old Testament. And the story was about Judah and Tamar. And here we have... Tamar, daughter-in-law of Judah. She's married to one of his sons. He dies through leveret marriage. The other brother who remains takes his brother's wife and provides for her. And it's a cultural thing. And it's all this tied into it. And then he dies and Judah fearing that um, he would lose another son to this curse of a woman uh, tells her, you know, just wait a little bit and, and I'll have another son for you and, and keeps putting her off. And she, suffering the slings and arrows of shame in society, uh, ultimately disguises herself as a prostitute, has union with Judah, conceives. He has no idea that it's her, outs her later on as sort of this uh, very loose woman. And then in this, wow, stunning zippy twist of an ending, she presents <laughs> these tokens that he left her in payment 
and everybody finds out, wow, Judah was actually the one who was with this woman. And so the story has this from a Western mindset, this sort of uh, what a, a terrible thing for Tamar to do. Here's this woman who's prostituted herself and she chases down her father-in-law. What scandal is this? What R-rated movie could this ever come from? And then to realize in context, actually the antagonist here in the story, sort of the dirty dog was Judah who didn't provide for her another mate via leveret marriage and and provide her with a standing in society. So I remember a moment in class, we were talking about this and no one was familiar with this story. And in a slightly better, but still probably poor retelling, I recounted the accounts of it. And I remember the shock of one of the students as they hung on the words of the story and someone said, that's in the Bible. Like (laughs) I can't imagine this is in the Bible. But it made me think how incredibly compelling these stories of scripture are, especially understanding in context as it builds to this climax and then ends in a way that we wouldn't expect reading through Western eyes. And it so helps to keep it in context. And and this is exactly what we try to do away with in in our Western mm -hmm, eyes. Sure. Um, Because, well, this is just dumb, you know, and also not culturally relevant. Uh, anymore and I don't get it anyway and so you know let's just stick to the facts you know (laughs) exactly yeah what can I take from this and don't let me get in the weeds with all this that I don't understand it's so interesting and you mentioned the use of parable which Jesus masterfully did in the New Testament that I I think again we've lost elements of that because most everyone can read and write in our society and and we provide them with devotional material and these safe, clean sort of uh, um, books to read, experiences to go through. And yet Jesus told these stories that connected so well with people and they knew exactly what he meant when he would say, I knew a man or there was a man and fill in these compelling details. And the stories were simple at their face value, but they connected so well. And I wonder, are we connecting as Christians with scripture, with, with the presence of the risen Christ in our lives or with other Christians? Well, one of the things that uh, I don't talk about in the course, but maybe I should, is the difference between uh, deductive and inductive learning and reasoning. Um, we are so deductive in the Western world. Uh, we, you know, want principles, laws, ways of acting, whatever, and then apply them. You know, that's, that's, and, and so uh, you can have something like a one page devotion, you know, which is story, but nonetheless resolves somehow in one short page. And that's what we're looking for. It's just, you know, give me the bottom line you know, what is the principle behind this thing? And uh, that is exactly not how Jesus taught, generally speaking. Now, he did just a little bit of the deductive. Um, He would just kind of actually tell sometimes, but mostly it was story after story after story. And so if you think about, as an example, uh, Matthew 13, and Jesus is talking about uh, the kingdom of God. Okay, what is the kingdom of God like? And it's just one thing after another after another that 
are seemingly so random and unattached uh, to each other. And uh, so it's the pearl of great price, it's the treasure in the field, it's um, a net full of fish, like what? And so it's just one after another after another. And, and then there's no conclusion. <laughs> That's the most amazing thing um, is Jesus says, well, basically, you've got enough to go on now. And, and that is inductive reasoning. It's, it's just example, 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 example. And then you have to kind of come up with what is that guiding principle, you know? And we can actually come up with a lot of guiding principles about the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of the point. Uh, it's not just one thing. And so it, it flies in the face of what we value as a culture, which is the one thing. And I think that there's so much more room in other cultures uh, for uh, non-resolution and things to be a little murky and, uh, you know, just having to figure it out for yourself. I mean, that's wisdom is what that is. Um, and that's what we've done away with, I think, in many ways uh, with how we think about the Bible, how we think about writing in general um, is just there's not a lot of room for wisdom. You just have to tell me what it is that I'm supposed to be thinking. And, and it's really, really too bad um, because, because it just loses all the power that potentially is there. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.